0: Aren't you glad tonight that we have the privilege to come together and remember a Risen Lord and Savior? Amen. Let's give him a hand tonight. Wow. That was good. Man, look around and look at all your fellow church members and community folks. Just look around. Isn't this awesome to be able to get together on a Monday night and to be able to do this together? Look at our youth down here. And all of our kiddos. Appreciate them. You would be seated. Take your Bibles tonight. Let's turn to the book of John. As you know, for the last uh, three Sunday mornings, we've been uh, we've been looking at a series that we entitled Preparing Our Hearts for Easter. And as we prayed about and thought about this, this uh, series and then leading into um, Easter and the things surrounding that, we we kind of came up with this idea. Well, what if we prepare our hearts for Easter, not only looking at those topics that we did on Sunday morning, but what if we transition that into the seven days leading up to that and really Take a concerted effort to truly prepare our hearts for Easter. What would that look like? And we came up with this, this statement about what we're going to be doing with these last 24 hours. And I wish I had that James Earl Jones voice right here to be able to read that, you know. But this is the way we've been promoted. The 24 hours leading up to Jesus' crucifixion are filled with intrigue, mystery and suspense like Hollywood is yet to produce. But these 24 hours tell more than a story. They frame for us the very actions we should strive to emulate as we face many of the same issues in our life Jesus faced in his last 24 hours. And what I try to communicate as we prepare to go into this week is I don't want us just to look at these events that happened in the 24 hours leading up to Jesus's crucifixion from a historical standpoint. It's my desire to take these events and not only understand them in the context of those last 24 hours, but for you and I to extract from those events, what should be our application? What should we put into practice in our life as we go through the things that we go through, just like Jesus was facing some things in his life so that we truly are. Preparing our hearts for Easter to be able to experience the Resurrection Sunday like we never have before. So tonight we're going to be in John chapter 13. We're going to travel into the upper room. It's there that we're going to observe Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And we're going to focus in on the practical application from that event of how that you and I can cultivate a servant's heart. So Sunday morning we looked at the events that, surrounding, that was surrounding Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on that inaugural Uh, Palm Sunday. And then if you took the Gospels and you took all four of them and you looked and you went back and forth, you would put together a chronological understanding of what happened following Jesus's exit from Jerusalem on that Sunday of Palm Sunday until we enter into the upper room where we are tonight. And if you were to do that, you would find that on Monday, Jesus returned back to Jerusalem But it's on his journey from where he was staying to Jerusalem that he curses a fig tree because that fig tree was not bearing any fruit. When he goes into Jerusalem, it's there for the second time that he cleanses the temple from all of the money changers and the the debacle of what the religious structure was doing in his father's house. He leaves Jerusalem. Then on Tuesday, he returns back to Jerusalem and on the way to Jerusalem, he passes that same fig tree that he had cursed that is now withered and he uses it as an opportunity to teach on faith. Then he enters back into the temple and there he he preaches and he teaches and he calls out the religious leaders of that day. And he shows what how that they're not doing things the right way and they're not truly living what they are promoting. He then he leaves Jerusalem and he goes to the Mount of Olives and there he delivers the Olivet Discourse that talks so much about his second coming and when he'll be returning in all the power and the glory as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And while he's doing that, we find that Judas is now meeting with the Sanhedrin. He's meeting with those religious leaders that Jesus has called out that day, and they are talking to Judas about betraying him. When you look for Wednesday in the Gospels, you find that we don't have any record of what Jesus did on Wednesday. But then we move into Thursday. Peter and John go to Jerusalem. It's there that they're trying to find a location that Jesus and his disciples can, can use so that they can participate in the Passover meal together. And so about sunset, Jesus and his disciples, they enter into the upper room there in Jerusalem. And this is where we begin tonight On that Thursday evening where Jesus and his disciples have entered into the upper room. And this is where we'll begin looking at the events that comprise Jesus's last 24 hours in the upper room that Thursday night. The plot of our story begins to thicken. There's a smell of betrayal that's in the air. The shadow of death is hanging over the hero of our story and all the things that Jesus could deal with at the beginning of this 24 hour period. Of all the ideas and all of the topics, of all the things that Jesus could deal with, it is amazing to me that the thing that Jesus deals with that night to begin his last 24 hours, it's dirt. Dirt. Some years ago, an allergist and immunologist at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, he published a blog entitled Eat Dirt, Prevent Asthma. He says, why have asthma and other allergic diseases gotten so much worse in the last 50 years? No one knows for sure. But a leading hypothesis is called the hygiene hypothesis, which states we are simply too clean. It isn't the lack of exposure what he writes there. It isn't the lack of exposure to microorganisms that cause infections. That is our problem. But it's the lack of exposure to harmless bacteria and fungi, particularly those that live in the ground. Studies clearly show that growing up on a farm is protective against allergies and that the more rural the environment, the better your uh, your immune system reacts to disease. So he goes on to say, if you want to avoid asthma and allergies and et cetera, eat dirt. Man, isn't that something about that? <laughs> he got paid a lot of money to be able to do that. Now, the dirt that Jesus is dealing with on this and Thursday night in the upper room, he's not dealing with and he's not advocating eating dirt. But what he's about to do is to do something that no self-respecting Jew, no self-respecting Gentile would ever do unless they find themselves on the lowest rung of the social ladder and that he is about to wash the dirt off of. His disciples feet begin reading with me in John chapter 13 and verse three about this story it says Jesus knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. He got up from supper. Does anybody have a star or an asterisk right there in that passage of scripture? What that is saying is that in the original language, in the original Koine Greek, that was a present tense statement. Jesus immediately present tense began to do this action. But because this is a past tense story for us, then we are well, the translators put it in a past tense context from that. It's not that it didn't happen. They're just helping us understand emphatically the, 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 the author of this book ultimately the Holy Spirit. He wants us to understand this is something that was happening present tense in the middle of this supper. So Jesus got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. When I think about this passage of scripture, I can't help but think about how we as Americans, we spend thousands and thousands, if not millions of dollars on manicures and and pedicures on going to nice restaurants on going to resorts that really go the extra mile of really taking good care of us. Why do we do that? I submit to you it's because we enjoy being served. We enjoy other people doing things for us. We enjoy other people paying attention to the details and making us feel pampered and to make us feel special. And because of that trait and because of something that we enjoy, if we're not careful, we're going to be a lot like the crowds that were gathered in Jerusalem and lining the streets of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. They were lining the streets, they were taking their coats and they were throwing them out in front of Jesus. They were taking the palm branches and they were waving them and putting before him for him to be able to walk on because they understood or they believed that he was going to fulfill an agenda that they had. But once it was revealed to them that he was not going to fulfill the agenda that they had, they suddenly turned on him and began to go the opposite direction. And I don't know but why that's not some why so many Christians struggle with Christianity today. They like the idea of salvation. They like the idea of going to heaven. But when it comes to this agenda that Jesus has, that you've got to work, that that, that you've got to serve, that you've got to put into action these spiritual gifts that you've been given. Suddenly, we want to find another church that doesn't require so much of us. Suddenly we want to find another opportunity. Maybe even we walk away from following God at all because it's just too much work. I just want to be pampered a little bit. I put in a full day. I pull in a lot of work. And when I come home, I don't want to do a lot of stuff. I just want somebody to take care of me. But I want you to understand tonight, as I look at this passage of Scripture, and as we look at the totality of the Bible, Jesus's agenda for every Christian is to have a servant's heart. And it's not just to have a servant's heart, but it's to have one that produces action. And, 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 and oftentimes it doesn't fit our agenda. And oftentimes it doesn't fit what we want to do. We don't want to necessarily do that serving. We don't necessarily want to be involved in all this. But it does not change the fact that Jesus' agenda for every Christian is to have a servant's heart. And that servant heart is to be one that produces action. So, remember, the reason we're studying Jesus' last 24 is we're trying to make a practical application from the example that Jesus gives us as he's nearing his crucifixion where he pays the ultimate price for our salvation. So, tonight, the practical application is, and what I want us to get from studying this event of the washing of the disciples' feet is, I want us to cultivate a servant's heart tonight. And I see in here three steps. That I must take, that we must take if we're going to cultivate a servant's heart as exemplified by Jesus in the upper room. So step number one that I must take to cultivate a servant's heart is I must teach myself to notice the needs of others. I must teach myself to notice the needs of others. Look at verse three again in John chapter 13. Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands. And that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from the supper, laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Here we have a classic oxymoron. Listen to what that says. Jesus knows he is God. He knows that he is from God and he knows that he is returning to God. If there was anyone that had the right to be served, if there was anyone that had the right to bark orders. If there was anyone that had the right to snap his fingers, and when he snapped his fingers, everybody was to jump up and do exactly what he wanted them to do, it would be Jesus. But it says in this passage of Scripture, instead of barking orders and giving commands, he prepares himself to wash the smelly, filthy, dirty feet of his disciples. Now, we don't worry about dirty feet in our society today, do we? We look down at our feet today and we've got shoes on or we have socks on or or we have flip flops on with those pretty, pretty painted toenails that are all manicured and all those kind of things. Right. We don't deal with dirty feet in our well, unless our, you have boys. But other than that, we don't deal with dirty feet. Right. But in that society, in that day, the disciples dealt with dirty feet. They, they may have had sandals, but if they didn't have sandals, they walked barefooted every place that they went. And even if they had sandals, the roads that they walked on were dirt roads, and they were dusty roads, and their feet were always dirty. And a lot of times, there were these quick showers that would blow in, and as a result of that, there was mud. And so their feet were always dirty or dusty or muddy in some fashion. And so when a person would get invited to someone's house to eat dinner, it, w- it was very important that when they walked into that house, that they either removed their sandals, but at a minimum, they went to a wash basin. And there at the wash basin would be a household servant that would be down on their knees and they would wash the feet of each and every person that came in for dinner. And there was a reason for that. The Bible tells us that when, when, when Jesus and his disciples came together, what did they do at the table? They reclined at the table. Now, when we think about recliner, what do we think about? We think about Lazy Boy, right? We think about kicking back this direction. And when we think about eating in the recliner, we think about kicking back and propping our plate right there on that little hump that we have right there. And it sits really good right there. And we eat this way. So our feet have nothing to do with that moment. I look just like my daddy when I do that, don't I? Well, our feet aren't in the equation, but their reclining was much different. It wasn't a backwards reclining. It was a sideways reclining. And so when you reclined at the table on your elbow to eat, your foot was in somebody else's face. And not only was it in somebody else's face, it was in their food. How about that? Somebody else's foot is right next to your face and right next to your plate of food. And everybody's going, Ugh, exactly. Aren't you glad we're Americans? We have pedicures and those kind of things. But that's exactly what's going on in this place. Now, we've got to remember that that Peter and John, they've gone into Jerusalem and they borrowed a location. They borrowed this upper room for Jesus and the disciples to participate in the Passover meal together. They're not a guest of anyone. There's no hired servant. There's no household servant that's present as they come into the upper room. That's there to wash their feet and to clean their feet so that when they're reclining, they don't have dirty, nasty feet by their face and up by their food. And it's in that moment when everybody reclining at the table, definitely not hard to notice that everybody's feet is dirty. Everybody's feet needs washing. Everybody's feet is smelly from the day. Everybody is reclining at the table. It would not be hard to notice the need. And it's in that moment when Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, he slips off his outer garment. He picks up a basin of water, he grabs a towel, he gets down on his knees, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. Now, it's not like Jesus didn't have anything else on his mind that evening. Jesus was very cognizant of the fact that this was his last 24. He was very cognizant of the fact that he was fixing to go from this received teacher to this rejected Savior. He he was, he was very cognizant of the fact that he was about to go to the cross in 24 hours and he was going to bear on his shoulder all of the sins past, present and future so that all of humanity had the opportunity to be restored back into a relationship with God. Yet. Here we see Jesus taking the time to wash the disciples feet. Why? Why is Jesus washing the disciples feet? I submit to you tonight, it's because nobody else noticed the need. Nobody else noticed that the feet next to them were dirty and were in need of being taken care of. And, you know, that's what happens when we only focus on ourselves. When we only focus on what our needs are and what our wants are and what is immediately in front of us. We only focus on our ministry and no one else's ministry, our problems and no one else's problems. We become very self-centered and we don't notice anybody else that is around us. But that's not the way a Christian is commanded to act. We know that because in Philippians chapter 2 it says, Do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, what? Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also look out for the interests of who? Others. Now let's be real honest right now. When we read that passage of scripture, we may not say it out loud, but we're thinking it, aren't we? If I'm always worried about somebody else's needs and I'm always serving the other person's needs. Say it with me. Who's taking care of my needs? If I'm always giving, when do I get when I'm always laying it out there? When does my time come around? And we find the answer to that just a little bit later in Philippians, in Philippians chapter four and verse 19, when it says, my God will supply what? All my needs. You see, in this event in the upper room, we see three steps that I have to take to cultivate a servant's heart. It's the agenda that God has for all of us. It's the agenda that Jesus sets for us. And the first step is I must teach myself to notice the needs of others. The second step is. I must train myself to serve the needs of others. There's a reason why the disciples did not notice what was going on around them. There was a reason that Jesus is the only one that notices the dirty feet that are up in his face and next to his food. And we find the reason for that in Luke's account of this same event called the upper room and the the washing of the disciples feet. And so in Luke chapter 22 and verse 24, it's, it's looking at this same event. And Luke is writing about this and he says... At the table, in the upper room, there arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. Here at the upper room, 24 hours before Jesus is about to be crucified, they're reclining at the table. And the reason that they're not noticing the other people need to be served is because they're having a Muhammad Ali argument. Well, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, no, I'm the greatest. No, you're not. I am the greatest. I float like a butterfly and I sting like a bee. I am the greatest, right? They were so busy worrying and arguing over who would be Jesus' vice president. Remember, Palm Sunday, coming into Jerusalem, they've got an agenda. They're so worried about who's going to be the second in command. Jesus is about to establish his earthly commandment, a uh, 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 nation. Who's going to be the one that's going to be right there with him? Who's going to be on his left hand? Who's going to be on his right hand? That they did not care about the needs of others. We continue to read in Luke 22. Jesus says to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. You know, you know, this 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 Roman Empire that you're sick of and you're ready to get rid of that you're so tired of oppressing you. The kings of that world, the kings of the Gentiles, they lord it over people. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it's not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. So what we see taking place in the upper room is not Jesus just preaching servant leadership. We see Jesus demonstrating servant leadership. Leadership. Look back at our text in John chapter 13. His disciples are arguing over who's going to be the greatest in this new nation. And there's this basin of water. There's this towel and it's sitting over in the corner and nobody is using it. They're arguing over who's the greatest, but they're not noticing the need that is around them. And Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he got up from supper. He laid aside his garments, taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples feet and wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Two thousand plus years have passed since that event take place that took place. And not really a lot has changed with us, has it? Aren't we always quarreling and asking who's the greatest? It goes something like this How much money do you make? Are you the greatest? How many employees report to you? Are you the greatest? How many followers on Twitter do you have? Are you the greatest? What neighborhood do you live in? Are you the greatest? What kind of car do you drive? Are you the greatest? But you know what we never hear anybody ask the other person? How can I serve you today? I want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. What can I do for you today? It's not normal in our culture to submit to someone else, is it? It's not. It's not. It's so unnatural that when we read things like husbands, love your wife as Christ loved love the church and gave himself up and, and, and wives submit yourself to your husband, we change the words. Because it's a bad word. It's not a word that any of us should have to do. But yet it's a, it's a biblical understanding. We don't like the idea of submitting to someone else or serving their needs. That's why we have to train ourselves to do it. It doesn't come naturally. And you think it's hard to, to submit yourself and to serve others that you like. What about submitting yourself and serving others that have wronged you? What about submitting yourself to serving someone that you know that's stabbing you in the back? What about with a good heart and a good spirit, choosing to serve someone that you know doesn't like you? That's what Jesus did in our story, didn't I? Look at verse 2 of chapter 13. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas's carrot, the son of Simon, to do what? What verse did that happen? Verse 2. Remember that star that you had? What does it mean? It was presently happening. The writer is telling us this is what's going on. While Jesus is in the upper room, Satan has got into Judas's heart. And Judas has made the determination present tense. In that moment, he will betray Jesus. He's going to take the Sanhedrin up on their offer of 30 sil- pieces of silver. Then what happens in verse 12? 12? What does it say? So when he had washed their feet. Who's the they? All of his disciples. Who was included in all of his disciples in verse 12? Judas. Judas. Again, serving others doesn't come naturally for us. But serving someone who is intentionally hurting us. Serving someone that is stabbing us in the back and is not like us. Man, that's going over the top. You see, that's why we have to train ourselves to serve others. How do we do that? How do we train ourselves to serve others? Well, it's in our story. Look at verse 15 of chapter 13. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to us. And he says, for I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you, do you see that little word "as"? I've got it highlighted up here in our text. And for I gave you an example that you also should do as. That's a little bitty word in English, but that is a huge word in the Greek text. That word that we find there—it's the word "kathos," and it's a compound word. It comes from the word "kata," that means according to, and "hos," which means in such a manner. For I gave you an example that you also should do according to in such a manner as I did to you. Now, here's the deal. Jesus is not literally telling us to go around washing other people's feet. Jesus is not in this moment instituting a new religious process that every time that we come together, we are to wash One another's feet, but what Jesus is saying and what he is showing us and what he has demonstrated for us is that just as I have shown you accordingly, as I have shown you the example that I've set for you, train yourself to notice others. Just as you've seen me act in the upper room, train yourself to think of others. Just as you've seen me put into practice what I've been telling you for the last three and a half years to be great in my kingdom, you need to do. Train yourself to serve others. Just as you have seen me do it, just do it. Cultivate a heart of service. Train yourself to never think doing something for someone else is below your dignity. Train yourself to understand doing something for others is never below your pay grade. Train yourself to understand that there is nothing that you can do for others that is too distasteful and it is too inconvenient because the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords noticed that there was a need and I took off my outer garment and I picked up the towel and I took care of what the need was in the moment. Three steps we must take to live counterculturally to cultivate a servant's heart. Number one, I must teach myself to notice the needs of others. Number two, I must train myself to serve the needs of others. And number three, this is very important tonight, the other two will not happen until we get number three. I must be cleansed to have a heart to serve the needs of others. I have to teach myself, I have to train myself, but I have to be cleansed to have a heart to serve the needs of others. Begin reading with me in verse 6 of chapter 13. Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, so he comes to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, remember, he rebuked him, Jesus, you're never going to die, right? That's what he's just told him in another case. And now he says, Jesus, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, well, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And Jesus is like, I mean, Peter's like, "Okay, let's get out the bathtub and the rubber ducky and let's just get it all over us right here, right now. You know, let's don't stop at everything. Let's just wash every part of my body right here, everything. I want to have lots to do with you, Jesus. And here in verse 10, Jesus makes the key statement that answers a lot of questions surrounding Jesus' last 24. He brings his whole story into harmony here in verse 10. Jesus, wash all of me. Jesus, wash every single bit of me. And Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but he's completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. Now, there's two different words that's used in this text that deals with this idea of washing. Look at it there in verse 10. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed, it's the word luo, luo is the idea of bathing your entire body. It's taking a complete bath, every part of your body being washed away. And Jesus says to him, he who has luo, who who has been bathed, all of his body has been bathed, needs only to do what? Wash. Niptoe is the word that's used there. Niptoe is the idea of only washing a part of your body. Maybe washing your face or washing your hands or washing your feet. And what we realize as we take this journey through this whole passage and we come here to verse 10. Jesus is using this physical illustration of the washing of the feet to give us a spiritual insight to the washing of our hearts. There's two kinds of cleansing that's necessary if we're going to cultivate a heart of service. And if these washings do not take place, we will not cultivate a heart of service. The first washing that he talks about in this passage of scripture, it's the bath of salvation. The bath of salvation. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed, he that has participated in the bath. The total cleansing, the bath of salvation needs only to lip toe, needs only to have a portion of his body washed. Because he's completely clean, you're clean, but not all of you are clean. For he knew the one who was betraying him, who is that? Listen to it again. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, Not all of you are clean. I have people ask me every Easter season was Judas saved? No. Did Judas go to heaven? No. Based on what? That passage of scripture right there. It's very clear. He who has been completely washed with the bath of salvation needs only to wash a little bit of their body at times. But they're completely clean. They're totally saved. You're clean, Peter. You're clean. But not all of you are. For he knew the one who was betraying him for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. You see, Romans 10, 9 says. We have to confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. See, that's why Easter is so important. Easter is the culmination of the fact that Jesus is God and he does have the power to take away the sins of the world. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. When you confess, I'm dirty from sin. I realize that all sin and fall short of the glory of God for there's none righteous. No, not one. I am a dirty sinner in need of a salvation bath. That's when your sins are washed away. That's why the Bible says in Titus three, five, he saved us. Not on the basis of our deeds. You see, some of you are here tonight and you're like, Judas, you're not bathed in salvation because you think you have to do something for your salvation. And that passage right here says he saved us not on the basis of our deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the what? By the bathing of salvation, by the bathing of regeneration. I love the way the New Living Translation says this. He saved us not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. Just as a physical bath cleans someone, all of someone on the outside, that's what salvation does to the inside of a person who confesses with their mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believes in their heart that God raised them from the dead. Then they are bathed with the waters of salvation. There's two kind of washing we have to have to cultivate. First of all, we have to have the bath of salvation. And then secondly, the second area that he talks about here is the washing away of daily sins. You see that there? Jesus said to him, he who has bathed, he who has had the bath of salvation needs only to wash part of their body. But they're completely clean. They're totally saved. But what he's saying in here is once Jesus bathes you in the waters of saving grace, you don't have to have salvation bath anymore. But man, we've got to wash our feet sometimes. We have to wash our hands sometimes. We have to wash our ears sometimes. Sometimes we have to wash out our eyes. Because as we walk through this society, and as we walk through this world, as we walk through this culture that says, this is right, even though it's contrary to Scripture, they say it's right. Sometimes we get pulled in that direction. We don't lose our salvation. But if we don't get back to what Scripture says and wash that out of our life, It will impact our servant's heart and it'll impact our fellowship with God. We don't, we don't have to be washed in salvation. We're totally saved. We don't do anything to be saved again. But our feet get dirty. Our eyes get dirty. Our ears get dirty. Our mouth gets dirty. Our, our thoughts get dirty. And because of that, maybe we're not actually participating in things, but we're getting at least at a minimum dusty. Those thoughts in our mind, those things that slip out of our mouth, they're showing that we need some washing to go on in our life. Not for salvation. And so that's why the Bible says in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, if what? We confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to do what? Wash our feet. Wash our mouth. Wash our eyes. Wash our feet to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Man, it's a beautiful story, isn't it? Golly, we're not saved by anything that we do. We're saved because Jesus bathes us in his love and his mercy and his grace and his righteousness. And he, he, in doing that, he gives us this heart to serve. That's his agenda for all of us. His agenda is for us to serve, to put into action what he's done in our life. And sometimes we mess up. Sometimes we fail. Sometimes we trip up. Sometimes our feet get dusty. And he doesn't jerk that salvation away from us. He uses that Holy Spirit inside of us to bring conviction and and, and moving in us and showing us you're headed in the right direction. And when we come back to him and we confess that, he washes that dirt out of our life and he makes us pure and clean again so that we can go into the next day and into the next moment clean and pure and righteous standing before him the three steps that we need to take to live counterculturally are to cultivate a servant's heart. I have to teach myself to notice the needs of others. I have to train myself to serve the needs of others, and I must be cleansed to have a heart to serve the needs of others. Tomorrow night we're going to be looking at the Lord's Supper and we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper together. But before Jesus moves into the institution of this new Covenant I give to you in my blood And in my body He says my people Are going to have a a servant's Heart It's going to have to be cultivated in them It's going to have to be developed In them But, but that Not for salvation But that's What takes place Before you enter into this memorial Of a covenant relationship So I can't Help us say, if we're preparing our hearts for Easter, shouldn't we evaluate how we're serving others in our life? What was happening around the, the table that night when the disciples weren't serving each other? They were arguing. Good. I wonder if there's... Arguments that are taking place between husbands and wives because we've stopped noticing each other's needs. I'm the greatest. I'm the most important one. I'm the one that needs my needs met first. I wonder if there's some arguments that's taking place between parents and kids. I wonder if there's some struggles that's happening at work because we've determined, I'm just not going to do that. And we stop noticing how that God says, do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Tomorrow night on the Golf Channel, there's an interview that's going to be happening with George W. Bush, former president. And in that interview, a question is asked, what is it about politics that brings out the best and worst in us? And he said, well, the best part of politics is serving. Can I say, if that question was asked to Jesus, what is it about Christianity that brings out the best and worst in us? I don't know what Jesus would answer the same way. The best part about Christianity is serving others. Whether we do it or not, it's what brings out the best and the worst in all of us. So tonight I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads. We're, we're preparing our hearts for Easter. We're, we're looking at the upper room and this event that's happening in Jesus' last 24 hours. We're preparing our hearts to be able to come on Sunday and celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. To celebrate the fact that Jesus paid it all. And to prepare our hearts, I wonder if we look and say, do I have any issues in any of my relationships right now? And if the answer is yes, then would we say, am I demonstrating a servant's heart in doing that? Relationship. You're the only one that can answer that. You're the only one that can deal with that. You're the only one that can. Take action. Positive or negatively. But we're preparing our hearts for Easter. We're looking at these last 24 events. Not just to gain historical knowledge. But to make practical application. If Jesus's agenda is for me to serve others. Is that what I'm going to do? And is that what I'm doing or not? And so to kind of wrap up our time tonight, we're going to sing, Jesus paid it all. All to him I freely give. Sin had left a crimson stain and he washed it white as snow. And the one that washed it white as snow was the one that noticed the needs of others. Took off his outer garment girded himself with a towel, got down on his knees with a basin of water, and he washed and served other people before he served himself. Father, I pray as we think about what you did for us, that there's an action, if there's a relationship that we need to mend. Whatever it is God, that you want to put on our hearts to do, I pray that we'll be open to that as we truly want to prepare our hearts to celebrate Easter.
1: Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me I it all, all to Him I owe. Sin and left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow.
0: invite you back tomorrow night as we're going to be taking communion and participating in the Lord's Supper. We'll start right at seven o'clock. And so if you could join us, we'd love for you to be able to do that.